I want to talk tonight uh, starting with a, a question for you, and that is, what is the good life? And I was thinking, what's a, a great place to start as we think about the, the good life? Um, where should we look? Uh, I know what philosophers and etc. should we listen to to think about, well, what, what is the good life? And my answer is TV. Because TV, I think, reflects uh, our values in uh, great many respects. If we don't like what we see on TV, we just change the channel. And eventually, uh, if uh, the show is not watched, uh, it will go off the air. So I think it's fair enough to say, well, you know, if we want answers about the good life, let's go and look at TV. And uh, it's not a favourite show, but I think one that's very interesting is a show called Getaway. Because each week, okay, we've got a fan of Getaway up the back here. Uh, each week, uh, the Getaway team show you two or three op options for getting away from everything, of escaping the humdrum, the problems, the issues that you might have in your everyday life, and just getting away and you know, enjoying, you know, travelling to Europe or maybe down to the you know, south coast for a weekend away. Bit of nice food, bit of a walk along the beach, just sounds beautiful. So the good life, uh, according to Getaway at least, is you know, escaping from your troubles, enjoying the world, etc. But I want to turn that over to you guys and just ask, well, on TV, what do you see portrayed as the good life? Do you have a favourite show? Yeah. You do watch TV, don't you? Steve. It's a sport. Okay, so you're a sports fan. So what's the good life as portrayed through the lens of sport? Yeah, being the best, uh, succeeding. Or maybe in some senses life is really complex and messy, but in a game of footy there's rules and everyone knows where they stand. That might be another way in which life makes sense. Yeah, up the back, Matty. Uh, better Homes and Gardens. Okay. So what's the good life according to Better Homes and Gardens? Yeah, so and cooking, nice garden, nice home. Yeah, um, a nice home can be sort of like a little sort of paradise. Set aside from the worries of the world, you can get away from it in your own kind of backyard. Yeah, that's fair enough. Patrick, Pokemon? you're kidding. <laughs> Pokemon. How can Pokemon tell you what the good life is? Oh, so accumulation. So the one who dies with the most toys wins. Is that the? Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. <laughs> okay, Elise. Yeah. Ah. Well, there you go. It's interesting you should say The Bachelor because I chose the... Oh, okay. Okay. Well, I like the idea of Farmer Wants a Wife. I would never watch it, but I like the idea because uh, for a guy to be alone, particularly in the country when there's, you know, there might, the nearest woman might be, you know, a thousand kilometres away, um, uh, the prospect of being alone is a horrible thought, isn't it? I mean, we want... Uh, relationships, we want to be valued, we want to have someone who is you know, our special person. Um, you know, the format's a bit sucky because you're lining up a bunch of farmers with a bunch of women, getting them together. It's all based on infatuation, not 
really something that's going to work in the long term. But the underlying idea of the good life you know, is, is relationships and being part of that. So let's, let's move on from TV. But uh, often these shows seem to be saying the good life is about what I experience and what happens to me, the relationships I'm in, etc. But there's another side to the question of what is the good life, and that is how do I live well? Um, even if I'm just watching Getaway, I've got to choose which option I take. You know, I've got to make a decision. How do I make a good choice? But life's full of choices we make, and the good life is the life that's lived well. It might be uh, the decisions we make about you know, where we live, etc. It might be the career that I take. Uh, you know, I might have a natural uh, inclination to be uh, good at you know, English teaching or something like that. So that's what I do, and I do it well. Uh, I might w want to make a difference through what I do. It could be through the relationships that I have with my children, my family, uh, the people around me that I seek to kind of live a legacy perhaps so that when I eventually die, I will have lived a good life because of you know, all the uh, impact I've had on people around me. Hopefully they'll say nice things about me at my funeral. And uh, too bad if I... If, I don't really mind if they don't, really. It's just, yeah, I'm dead. So what does Paul say about the good life? I mean, uh, the, the passage we're looking at today, uh, 1 Corinthians 12, is not like a theory of the good life. It's not laying out all the parameters of what is a good life. But Paul says something very interesting in verse 7. It's not part of the uh, verses that were read for us. And what he says, I'm just looking it up myself here, in uh, on page 1113 of the Brown Bibles, uh, verse 7, he says, Now uh, to each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. So those words, the common good, suggest that God wants us to live well. He wants us as a community, as a group, to have, in some sense, the good life. Uh, just so you understand where we're going tonight, I'll just show you a bit of a roadmap of the three broad questions I think the passage we're looking at tonight raises for us. The first one is, what is the good that God wants for us? The second is, how does God act to make that happen? What does God do? So what does God want? What does God do? But for us, how do we live in response to what God wants and does for us? That's the framework for, uh, for the talk tonight. So I just wanted to read uh, verses 1 to 6. Uh, they weren't read for us, but I think they kind of set the scene for what's going on here. Uh, Paul says, uh, Now about spiritual gifts, brothers, I don't want you to be ignorant. You know that when you were pagans, somehow or other, you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. Therefore I tell you that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus, be cursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, there are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but the same God works all of them in all men. So uh, what we are looking at is kind of half of a conversation. Paul's dealing with an issue. It's kind of an interesting issue. He, it's this idea of Jesus being cursed. And Jesus, so Paul doesn't really explain to us what this Jesus be cursed uh, issue is all about, but he goes on 
in addressing this issue to talk about the church and how God acts uh, for the good of the church. So even though the issue is a little bit opaque and hard to understand, like what exactly is going on, the things that Paul says in response are applicable and helpful for us. So what is God doing in Corinth? Um, we haven't yet talked about what God wants, but what, what is God doing in, uh, in Corinth? There's a couple of things. You'll notice them. Uh, Paul has told us what they are. You'll see here that it says, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Uh, Jesus is Lord is a kind of three-word summary of the Christian message. Uh, it's, um, it doesn't, it's, it's just a phrase that, in letter, letter to the Romans that Paul uses to summarise the, the gospel message. Now, there's a lot of information that goes into this idea that Jesus is Lord. Um, perhaps the best way to explain that, if you're not familiar with the idea, is the passage from Mark that was read for us tonight talked about Jesus being like a doctor who comes to heal somebody, but he comes to save sinners. Um, the, the passage from Mark also uh, talked about uh, with the paralytic. Jesus heals the paralytic, uh, not obviously for the benefit of the paralytic, but also to show that he has authority to forgive sins. So the, message, the Christian message is that we are all individually and corporately sinners and we need someone to solve that sin problem for us and that's what Jesus does. So all that is condensed into these three words, Jesus is Lord. But you'll notice here that Paul says that no one can say that. I mean, I guess you can just mouth the words, but no one can say it and mean it uh, without the Spirit doing something within that person. For someone to say it and mean it shows you that God, through his Holy Spirit, is working in that person. So that's the first thing that God is doing in Corinth. He, this message about Jesus is being preached and people are responding positively to that. And that's a sign of uh, the Spirit at work. Uh, another thing that's going on is that the Spirit is giving gifts. Uh, we'll come and look at a moment about what these gifts are. But these gifts are being given. They're different kinds of gifts, but they're being given uh, by the Holy Spirit. Uh, Paul says there are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. What, what he means there is that uh, the purpose of the gifts is that so we might serve each other or serve Jesus. And finally, there are different kinds of workings, but all of them, uh, in everyone, it's the same God at work. So God is at work uh, within people. Uh, I think many people in our society might object to all this talk of God speaking and God acting. Uh, that you know, there is there is no spiritual world. That you know it's all just talk, and these things don't happen. Uh, Christians tend to respond to that by pointing people to look at the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, the fact that Jesus can heal people shows that He can forgive sins. The fact that he rises from the dead shows that his death for, for, on the behalf of sinners is effective. So Christians always point people back to Jesus, his life and the resurrection uh, when questions of, you know, is this possible come up. So why is God giving these gifts uh, to, the, uh, the, to the church in, um, 
in Corinth. There's a couple of reasons that he expresses. In verse 5 he says that there are different, uh, sorry, there are different kinds of service but the same Lord. So the gifts are being given so that people might serve uh, Jesus. In verse 7 he says that these gifts are given for the common good. But throughout this chapter as we read it, we'll see that the Christian church is, a, is a likened to a body, not just a bunch of individuals uh, moving around randomly and interacting randomly, but a body that works together. And so it's for the unity and benefit of this body that God gives these gifts. So what sort of gifts does God give? Well, they're listed for us uh, here in verses 8 through 10. And you'll see that they're listed. So there's a, a message of wisdom, a message of knowledge, uh, faith is given, uh, gifts of healing, miraculous powers, prophecy, distinguishing between spirits, speaking in different kinds of tongues, and the interpretation of tongues. So they're the kinds of gifts that uh, God gives. And I think for us in a typical Anglican church in a typical suburb of Sydney, they kind of raise a bit of a tension for us because we don't tend to see uh, much in terms of miraculous powers or healing. And so it might raise the question of, well, are we a particularly good bunch of Christians or a particularly good church? Is there some kind of deficiency? Um, I just wanted to point you perhaps to two things that Paul says as a sort of response to that. In verse 7 he talks about the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one. So he's meaning there that every Christian has some manifestation of the Spirit. So my first comment would be that this list is not comprehensive. It's not the be-all and end-all. There are other gifts that are given. In fact, when Paul talks in other places about gifts, he lists different gifts. So this is not the complete list. The second thing I'd like to point out for you is in verse 11 that uh, he says all uh, these particular gifts are the work of one and the same spirit and he gives them to each one just as he determines. So the, the process that Paul is telling us about is that the spirit sees a need and gives a gift in order that that uh, need might be filled. So it may just simply be that the spirit doesn't feel that we have the, a need for uh, these particular gifts. The next question to think about was, well, who does God give these gifts to? And if we turn to verses uh, uh, 12 to 14, we'll see uh, that uh, that question is, is answered. Uh, the body is a unit, it says here, though it is made up of many parts, and though all of its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ. For we were all baptised by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit uh, to drink. So we, we come to uh, Christ as individuals, as not really a collection of people, but we've, what God does is he forms us into a body. And though it's many parts, they all work together. Uh, in the first century, the major distinctions that the, this gospel message overcame and, and brought people together, it brought Jews and Gentiles together. Prior to this, Jews and Gentiles were kept separate because the Jewish law kept them separate from their Gentile neighbours. Uh, Gentile just meaning non-Jew, basically. So the gospel message brings people from diverse groups together. It brings slave and free together. So all stratas of uh, 
the uh, society, the gospel message brings together. So God is forming people from diverse backgrounds into a body and the purpose of the gifts is to make uh, that happen. Now we might feel that perhaps I'm not gifted, I haven't got any of the gifts that have been listed so far and I might feel well perhaps I'm not part of Christ's body. Well Paul deals with that, uh, that issue. In verses uh, 15 to 20 we read, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has arranged the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. And if they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there is many parts, but one body. So the nature of a body is that each part has its function, they work together. Uh, I'd be kind of hard-pressed to name a piece of my body that I'd want to give up. Um, you know, a bit of plastic surgery mightn't hurt. A bit of, you know, uh, flab reduction probably wouldn't hurt either. But, you know, okay, I've got two eyes. I don't think I'd want to give one up, though. Um, I've got two kidneys. Um, I'd probably only want to give one up for close family members uh, to save their lives, perhaps. But you know, I, I, all my body bits are quite—I'm quite attached to them. Thank you very much. Um, I do understand that certain triad members chop off their little finger as a sign of you know, their allegiance to their uh, group. But even for me, that's even going a bit far. Uh, I'm, I'm not even going to get a tattoo. Uh, just a yeah, no way. So you might feel that in the body of Christ that you're, you know, one of the buttocks. <laughs> uh, but that's okay. Uh, how would the trousers stay on if there were no buttocks? Let's face it. Uh, you might not feel that you're particularly gifted, but you're a part of the body. And we'll address that question a bit further as to how you might participate. The other side of the question is, well, I'm gifted. You know, I've got this great gift. I can you know, heal people or miraculous stuff happens. Perhaps I'm special. Well, the answer to that, of course, is uh, yes or no. You are special because God has given you the gift. But he's given you the gift for the sake of the whole body, not for yourself. So it's not like you know, you've somehow ascended to an upper level your gift has been given to you so that you can build others up and, and help them. So yes, you're special, but you're not special. You, you, you've got a gift that you can use for the benefit of the, um, of the body. Uh, we can read that in verses 21 to 24. The eye, uh, Paul writes that the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you, and the head cannot say to the feet, well, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts we think are less honourable, well, we treat with special honour. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. So it's a bit like this. Uh, people who would be obviously gifted in this church, I think would probably be, if we were to discuss it, we'd probably agree that both David and Joe are quite gifted. So Paul would suggest that maybe uh, they're weaker, so he's, got, he's made them indispensable. Maybe they're less honourable, so he's made them 
give them special honours. Maybe they're unpresentable. So it could be that that's David and Joe there. The, uh, the left butt and the right buttock of this church. Um, and thankfully, they keep their trousers on. Or our tra- yeah, never mind. That's, that's next slide. Okay. Uh, Paul then talks a bit further about God's purposes in giving these gifts. Uh, He says, uh, verses 24, uh, God has combined the members of the body and has given greater honour to the parts that lacked it, so there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honoured, every part rejoices with it. Uh, So God's purpose is not to divide the body, but there should be no divisions, that if a part suffers, that we should suffer with it. Uh, Our word compassion means to suffer with. So it's to have compassion on people, to see them in a difficult situation and and maybe do something about it, Uh, to rejoice when someone does well. It's kind of very easy, I think, to hold people with gifts up on a pedestal, but their job really is to raise everybody else up, if you like. Um, An example of uh, teamwork, like in a church like this, is uh, cycling racing. So I'm going to bore you because I really love cycling and racing, but it's actually quite a good example. Because you may think from the way the cyclists cross the line with their arms raised that it's an individual sport. And this is a picture of Simon Gerrans. He's uh, just won the tour down under uh, today. So he's a very good cyclist. He's a top-notch guy. And you might think that, well, you know, the victory is his. He has won this race and all the glory is his. But to, uh, well, let's talk about sprinting. For him to, to sprint, he has to sprint. I think sprinters have about 10 seconds or maybe 20 seconds worth of energy in their legs. Uh, they're putting out a huge amount of energy. So he's really got to be in the right place 300 metres out from the, the finish. Now we're talking here about a 150 kilometre race, okay? So he's got to race for 150 kilometres and be in the right place 300 metres out or there's no chance of winning. So he needs Darren Impey. Darren Impey is his lead-out man. So what the lead-out man does is he gets the sprinter starting at about 600 metres out in the right place by the time they get to 300 metres out so the sprinter can win. So you're rapidly seeing that it's all getting very complex and very difficult very quickly. And so it's a 150-kilometre race, so you need a whole team of these guys working together, and their aim is to get their sprinter to that point 300 metres out from the finish line so he can do his job. It's crazy. And all sorts of things can go wrong, and uh, there was a touch of wheels in front of Gerrans the other day. They had a huge crash. He couldn't... Well, he finished the race, but he couldn't uh, do very well. Uh, he suffers, the whole team suffers. Yeah? Uh, when he wins, the whole team wins. It's a victory for the team. Uh, so there you go. Cycling is like going to church or, <laughs> or vice versa. So this raises the question of what are the greater gifts? And if, it, if you had a choice between two gifts, you know, gift A, gift B, which one would you rather have? And uh, 
Paul uh, gives us a, uh, a sense of that. His priorities are, first of all, the apostles, secondly, prophets and teachers. So the difference is that what the apostles are is they are the witnesses of Jesus' resurrection. So they have first place in the church because they give us direct access to Jesus. Uh, we read from Mark's Gospel earlier, and that's the testimony of the eyewitnesses. They saw Jesus do these things. They heard him say these things. And having spent three years with him, they can explain. I mean, Jesus did some strange and amazing things, but they can explain to us what that means for us uh, today. So having access to the apostles and their testimony is supremely important. So God has given them uh, to the church as gifts because without them we would kind of be lost as to what Jesus uh, did and said. Uh, what prophets do is they speak words of encouragement. You know, as those words come to them, uh, we're Anglicans, we're probably a little bit, um, uh, I don't know, sceptical about prophecy. Um, but prophets come second, they don't come first. So in other words, when we hear a prophet or someone who claims to be a prophet, we need to test what they've said against what the apostles say. Is it consistent? Is it reasonable? Etc. Um, prophets can be helpful, but they need to come in second place. Third place is teachers. And once again, teachers need to uh, teach what the apostles teach. If they're leading you away from what the, the apostles said, then they're, they're false teachers. And Jesus warns against uh, that false teachers will come. So we need to listen very carefully uh, to people who purport to teach and say, well, hang on, is what they're saying lining up with what the apostles said? So they're all very important. Uh, I want to take you very quickly to Acts uh, 15. So you want to, if you can turn it up in your Bible. It's kind of interesting because we see apostles, prophets and teachers working together. So it kind of helps us see how this works, I think. Uh, let me explain the issue. Uh, some Jewish Christians had gone to some non-Jewish Christians, some Gentiles, and, and said to them, hey, you guys, it's great that you become Christians, but now you need to become Jews. You've got to follow the laws of Moses, etc., etc." And so this issue went back to the apostles to be resolved. Is that true? Is that consistent with what Jesus' message was? And the apostle says, no, you don't have to become, if you're sorry, if you're a Gentile, you don't have to become Jewish. And if you love your pork and seafood, that's fantastic news. Um, but I'll just read verses 30 to 35 just to give you a sense of how the apostles and the, um, the prophets, etc., work together. So the men were sent off and went down to Antioch. That's the place where this controversy occurred, where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. The letter explains the, the apostles saying, no, you don't need to become Jewish. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Uh, Judas and Silas, these are the two men who uh, came with the letter, uh, they themselves were prophets and they said much to encourage and strengthen the brothers. So after spending some time there, they were sent off by the brothers with the blessing of peace to return to those who had sent them. So here's two prophets whose words, as they, they're led uh, in by the Spirit, are words of encouragement to strengthen the believers, but they're under the authority of the apostles. They come in the name of the apostles. They're delivering the apostles' letter. Uh, yeah. 
Verse 35 talks about teachers. It says, Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch where they and many others taught and preached the word of the Lord. So it's an interesting passage because it shows us the apostles, the prophets and the, preachers, uh, the teachers kind of working together. Now, once again, the issue comes up. In, in, we're back here in uh, 1 Corinthians 12. The issue comes up about not having these gifts. Uh, again, uh, Paul at verse 27, Paul says, Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. And in the church, God has appointed first of all apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then workers of miracles, those having gifts of healing, those able to help others, those with gifts of administration, those speaking in different kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Well, the way the, that sentence is written is no, not all are apostles, not all are prophets, not all are teachers, not all work miracles, not all have the gift of healing or speaking in tongues or interpreting, but eagerly desire the greater gifts. And now I'll show you the most excellent way. So Paul now is going to talk about a, a way that we can be gifts, if you like, within the church without necessarily having these the gifts that are nominated. Uh, one point that's interesting is that when Paul talks about gifts, he talks about not just simply abilities but people. So uh, the gifts of the church are the apostles. So they're people. They're not gifts. They're not abilities. Um, Prophets are people. Uh, teachers are people. And he then explains a way that each of us can act as a gift, if you like, to those, uh, to others in the church. Uh, starting at the end of uh, chapter 12, he says, Now I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it's not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil but rejoices in the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Uh, you might remember that uh, Paul says that God gave gifts to the church for the common good. It's as we love one another that we are gifts to each other and we, as we work for that common good. Uh, remember that one of the purposes of the gifts is there should be no divisions in the church. And here we read that love uh, is not self-seeking, it's not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. So a loving person, there is no division in the church if we're all loving each other because we're not seeking our own interests. Uh, when we're wronged, we're not keeping a record of wrongs, but we're forgiving each other. Uh, we, uh, yeah, we're not easily angered. So the gift of, of love, of being a loving person, is, is a true gift to the church if, if we are that person. Uh, okay, so finally, what is the good life? I suspect that uh, what Paul's talking about, he wouldn't make a particularly good television show. Uh, I mean, maybe the spectacular uh, 
spiritual gifts might be quite interesting, but it, yeah, in, in terms of a, a TV show, it's probably not the, the way forward. I think this passage tells us three things about the good life. Uh, the first thing is that the good life is from God, it's to God, and it's by God. So the, we're talking tonight about gifts. We're talking about the Spirit enabling us to say Jesus is Lord. All those things are from God. And what God is doing is he is bringing us to himself. He's reconciling us with himself through the gospel, but also bringing us safely to himself so that we might enjoy him forever. And, and that's God's work. Uh, the second aspect of the good life is that it's lived in community with God's people. Um, I suspect that what we see on TV is saying that the good life is about me and what happens to me. And the Christian message is no, we live in a community of, uh, with God's people. We suffer with each other, we rejoice with each other. And finally, Paul would say that the good life is lived in loving service of others, where we use our gifts, our abilities, and give of ourselves uh, for the benefit of others around us. So go and do that. I'm going to pray quickly and uh, then the next thing will happen, whatever that is. Uh, Father God, uh, thank you that uh, you have uh, opened our minds to understand that Jesus is indeed Lord. Uh, we n admit that we uh, naturally wander away from you and uh, we are so glad that you are bringing us to yourself uh, through the message of the gospel. So thank you that uh, we can know that Jesus is Lord and uh, be saved and reconciled to you. We thank you, Father, that you are gifting your church to uh, uh, build it up and so the church might be brought to you on that final day. Father, we pray that we might uh, love one another in the way that we act, that we be kind, gentle, not keeping wrong, uh, a record of wrongs, uh, forgiving each other. Pray that we might serve each other uh, in, through what we do. Amen.